Hello, listeners. Welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, it's just me and a return guest, fan favorite, Jeff Schollenberger of Outsider Theory and the Outsider Theory podcast, which has just launched not too long ago. Congrats on that, by the way. Thank you. And thanks for the uh, repeat invitation. Yeah, of course, man. Happy to have you on. Uh, today, we are going to talk about a mutual favorite movie by the singular David Cronenberg, Videodrome. And I figure we should start with uh, a little bit about how we feel about this movie and love it so much. I think the first time I saw it was like, um, I was like one of those heavy metal kids in high school where like so much of social life revolved around sitting with your smelly friends in one of their basements and like watching like horror movie, like practical effects, horror stuff, you know, from the local video store. So that's the first time I saw it. And it was like, totally, of course, like politically, like beyond my ability to comprehend what it was doing, but it was so trippy and insane. I absolutely loved it. The other day, I realized that I am now in my 30s, so I have lower cross syndrome from sitting so much and looking at my phone for my job. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this stuff is like patterning my body. And I thought of Videodrome. And then I was like, you know who would probably be good to talk about that? Jeff Schellenberger. I bet he likes that movie. And when I reached out to you, you're like, yeah, I've seen it like dozens of times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my own, I think I first discovered, uh, for Cronenberg, I think I, f- I mean, I, I think I saw The Fly pretty, pretty early on. And then I saw, um, uh, I think before I saw this, I saw uh, Naked Look, because I was into, as a high school student, I was into both Burroughs and Ballard. So I saw Crash mm-hmm. and, uh, and his uh, Naked Lunch. Oh, yeah. And then I yeah, kind yeah. of started going back into his earlier films and i mean i remember seeing videodrome actually when i i think just before the era of dvds so it was like mm-hmm. still i remember it being a video cassette which obviously is significant in relation to the yeah totally the uh content of the film um so i remember that being like you know a late and several of his other movies being movies i first encountered like by getting them from the video store and they were actually vhs um, tapes kind of in the in the final era when that was a thing so yeah yeah totally. so it brings back a lot of uh, the sort of materiality of of media in that period yeah definitely i mean i watched it on video cassette too and so like you know there's that at the first time you'll you never forget the first time he touches the like betamax in the movie and it like does the weird debbie harry breathing orgasmic yeah. thing yeah You'll never touch a VHS or Betamax the same way. They had to use Betamax for Videodrome because the weird stomach vagina that opens up Mm. was only so big that it could fit Mm. Betamax and not VHS. But Right, right, right. I mean, they're basically (laughs) identical technologies. But yeah, I mean, I just remember being totally floored by that and watching it this time. You know, so this movie comes out in like early 85 It was supposed to come out in 84, but Universal Studios had kind of maxed out its space-themed movies because um, E.T., which was a Universal picture, and The Thing by John Carpenter and a couple others had come out in 84, and so they pushed the release into 85. 
to keep it fresh because you could only do so much like you can only pack so much weird stuff, um, I guess, into a year, um, especially something like the thing, which is, you know, probably know, we could. Do, yeah, yeah uh, we, that would be a subject for another episode because I have so much to say about that. Too. Oh, I would love to have you back on to talk about that. That is an all time favorite <laughs> oh, yeah, film. So great. The fact that Ennio Morricone does the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, I mean, the and the practical effects like you can't I never get sick of talking about how absolutely wonderful they are in that. But when I was watching it this time, I mean, I really do get, like you said, the materiality of, of the film is so set in its time and place. And yet it seems to preempt a lot of what we're dealing with. And as I was saying to you before, unlike the thing, it doesn't feel like a cold war movie in the same way. The, yeah. the type of paranoia is too diffuse Mm-hmm. And not diffuse in the way that um, Lacarius, the spy who came in from the cold, uh, feels diffuse, where the ultimate realization is that everything's this sort of cynical game bigger than you that has all these petty grudges that sort of tessellate and yeah. create the world you're living in. It is, in fact, way weirder in Videodrome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and has these new agey yeah. yeah. post counterculture elements to it mm. with the mission of the cathode ray. You know, to, to my knowledge, it's the only film that essentially makes good on a sort of Marshall McLuhan media analysis. Yes, so totally. I was thinking a, about him the whole time. Right, yeah. because it's, I mean, it's pretty explicit. And of course, you know, Cronenberg is Canadian. McLuhan was Canadian. So there, mm-hmm. there's a sort of, you know, Canadian media theory lineage there. Uh, but yeah, so it, it has this character, Brian Oblivion, whose name is obviously a kind of play on, mm-hmm. although it turns out to be just his, um, his sort of nom de guerre, uh, <laughs> his, his nom de guerre, his, his t- television name. Yeah. Right. Which he says everyone will have in the future. I mean, it's also interesting that it, well, there are a few things to be said here, right? It's, it's interesting that it's, um, it's actually, a relatively late entry in the sort of the sort of TV era or sort of TV focused paranoia. And it's, it's, you know, it's pivoting between the television and the cathode ray as the, the central yeah. technology and the video cassette. Right. And, and the, the implications of those are both really present in, in the film, but it's, it's in a way a kind of transitional movie in terms of the the technologies whose implications it's exploring but you know because it, it's it's very much about broadcast right on one hand it's about i mean i mean in other words right, it's about right. two it, it deals with two modes of dissemination right one of which is broadcast and then the other of which is is video mm-hmm. right um, because, well, I don't know if, should we run down the basics of the story? Yeah, so the basics of the story, though, you know, I'm obviously waiting to encourage listeners preemptively to um, sit down and watch this. And I'm sure many have. Uh, I would not be surprised if there was strong overlap between Videodrome fans and exhaust listeners. But it follows Max Wren, who's played by a young and dashing James Woods, um, who runs Civic TV, which is an up-and-coming video TV channel. The fact that it's called Civic TV and the, its slogan is the one you take to bed with you is already commingling like this weird 
psychopolitical, psychosexual, and like media stuff all in one little bundle. Like that's like the opening scene is getting introduced to that. And um, he comes across through pirate broadcasts with a guy named Harlan who runs a pirate broadcasting station in, I want to say this is in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. The movie set in Toronto. I mean, it's never identified, but yeah, I mean, I assume all the Cronenberg of that era is, yeah. is Toronto pretty much. It's Toronto. And he comes across what is basically like um, a snuff channel that he becomes very interested in because as he says on a television appearance of his own, that civic TV has to compete in the market. And how's it going to do that? It's going to find the most salacious things that it possibly can. He's absolutely fascinated by this uh, videodrome signal, uh, which features like torture and things like that. And it reminds me of an old, like modernist avant-garde thing. Like he really wants, he's always just like, I want to show what's really going on between the sheets. Right. You know, right. like he wants to do the modern unmasking, you know, so you can see the horrible truth. It's the passion for the real. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, and it, it reminds me of how there was this um, industry of, you know, going back to when I was pretty young. I mean, in fact, probably around the same time I first encountered this film, there were all these, um, there were, I mean, they weren't snuff in the sense of, you know, they were like those um, those sort of CCTV footage of people getting killed and stuff. Yeah, totally. Remember totally. those that, yeah. those sort of series that had this kind of underground Masks circulation. Of that, Masks yeah, exactly. of death. I think that's what it was called. So, yeah, it does yeah. feel like that. And he gets sucked into that world of trying to figure out where does this broadcast come from? And we immediately enter or very swiftly enter into a weird world of competing media political religious factions that are hoping to repattern society to create a new flesh via the medium of tv uh that will succeed the human race and right. and yes so you have these these two kind of um seeming i mean similarly to other cronenberg from this period like scanners you have these kind of battling factions who are yeah. involved in this um the struggle over this new this sort of emergent technological capacity um and it's it's a little bit hard to work out at some points what what exactly is going on but you have on one hand yeah. brian oblivion who understands Techn I mean, it's it's a McLuhanite point, right? He understands the media as an extension of man, right? So, mm -hmm. so basically, the, he says, um, you know, this TV screen is the retina of the mind's eye. So, the idea is that um, these these new technologies are are the new body in some sense, and so the the new flesh is this process by which the body achieves this kind of mystical, I mean, it's almost like a singularity type vision, yeah, I'd say, and, right? It, and, it achieves and, this kind of mystical union with technology. Yeah. Right, and sort of the equation he has is that, like, if it is the mind's eye, then it's, the, if the television is the mind's eye, the cathode ray is part of the mind's eye, then it's an extension of the human body. 
Right. Which means that life with TV is more real than life without it because there's this extra appendage that you get to access. And it's basically like, uh, it's an interesting formulation Brian Oblivion does when he's explaining it because it's basically like, he's basically saying there is a thing as hyper reality. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what he lays Mm -hmm. out. And it's a physical experience. Yeah. Right. And so Videodrome, it turns out the there's more to it. So it seems to be essentially the snuff program where, the, you know, people are just brought into this kind of bare room with like an electrified clay wall. Yeah, that's such a I weird mean, it, detail. it looks it will, you know, what it reminded me of when I rewatched because I think I first watched it even before this. But then at some point when I later rewatched it, I thought of the Abu Ghraib. Um, yes. Tor- you know, because it, it really. It really does anticipate that, right? The the Abu Ghraib sort of the footage, torture torture footage that that came out, Um, and so it's essentially these like hooded people, you know, electrocuting and whipping and torturing these mostly naked women, Um, although I think some men as well appear as the victims. But Mm -hmm. in any case, the um, yeah, so so initially Max seems to see this as the new frontier because it's so visceral and you know it it seems like you know he he looks at these other you know these he's he's considering these other possible programs that he can broadcast one of which is like a samurai erotica samurai program where you see right where you see this sort of geisha you know classic sort of geisha woman like playing around with a wooden dildo Mm -hmm. and then another one is like a sort of roman orgy a sort of very stylized roman orgy type thing you know maybe sort of like that that Caligula movie that all those oh god British yeah. actors were in, but anyway, so it's like he's like, no, this stuff is too, it's too like feet and stylized. What we need is something that's raw and direct. Yeah, as one of his um, colleagues says, it's not, it's not tacky enough, and he says, right, Max says tacky enough for what, and he says tacky enough to turn me on. <laughs> right, right, right. And so I think you know, there's an interesting kind of thing about going on about media here, right, which is mm-hmm. the way that. Um, I think the, the possibility of of producing things like, you know, and you, you can think of like more recently, you know, the sort of perfectly appointed costume dramas of of Netflix and other yeah um, other sort of streaming services and how I think that, you know, the, the sort of dialectical obverse of that is just some kind of hunger for like, you know, and the, the appeal of things that are kind of ugly and badly put together and kind of... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like grainy footage and and like shitty memes and things like that, right? There, there's some way that that the the being accustomed to these kind of smooth, perfectly seamless surfaces on the screen kind of creates some kind of um, demand for you know what subverts that. Well, right? right, yeah, exactly. They're sort of like it's um, you know, like porn would be a good example. They're yeah. sort of like the totally waxed, like weirdly frictionless, even if it's like super hardcore, there's something like, f- like fantastic about it in the strictest sense of the way. And then there's just like weird shit shot on somebody's like fucking camera in their bedroom or whatever yeah. that has like, is incredibly frictive and it's like almost like stomach turning and it's reality yeah. <laughs> like yeah yeah it, it's they're just polar ends of the of the spectrum so you know the important thing is max you know he's he's drawn in by the the sheer rawness of this although he thinks that it's still you know he repeatedly people tell him 
you know, what they're doing is that like, these aren't actors, right? That's it's real. Yeah. Like these people are actually being tortured, um, but he won't believe it. Right. He, he, mm-hmm. cause he says, well, it just wouldn't make sense because you know, if, if you were going to, it, w- it would be so easy to fake it that why would you take the risk of actually killing, torturing and killing people <laughs> on screen? Um, so there, there's weirdly, he's, you know, he's, he's kind of a sleazy guy, but he's sort of willfully naive at the beginning. It would so, I mean, that's part um, of his sleaze, right? Because this yeah. whole thing about civic TV being like, look, we have to compete in the market. This is how we go. That's how his entire logic works. Like when he's sitting with his colleagues, they're not like, he has this instinct to say like, I want to uncover these things. I want to do this, but it's important to what's its service of. And it's in service of civic TV as a media enterprise. Right. So he doesn't necessarily need the real thing. He needs the salacious thing, right? right? Like that's what's going to matter to him. And I think that that's part of what gives him that naivete. And that's what Masha, the woman who eventually connects him to yeah. the people who are creating Videodrome, she says they have something you don't have, which is basically an ideology. Right. They exactly. have a philosophy. A philosophy. Yeah. yeah. And he doesn't have that. And that's sort of why he can't fully accept that anyone yeah. would take it to its final conclusion right 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 and so what is the philosophy i mean going back to the the previous point um right so i mean two things one the 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 broadcast well first of all i mean in relation to that kind of pivot between two media yeah you know the broadcast turns out not to be a broadcast right harlan has been showing him videos and pretending it's a pirate it's a signal that he's pirated yeah um so that's interesting right because it's it's sort of the old mode of dissemination versus the new one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, um, it turns out that the real significance of Videodrome is not the snuff content. It's rather that the the snuff content renders, and this is a very McLuhan point as well, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the, the medium is the message, right? That the, yeah. the, the snuff content is actually just the, um, it's, it's sort of what renders the viewer um, susceptible to the real signal, which is something, I mean, which in fact is something even more visceral, right? Which is that it, it induces a brain tumor, which then um, brings you into this hallucinatory hyper-reality as you, as you brought up. So oblivion, Brian oblivion's original interest in, in this technology was that it seemed to fulfill the, um, the idea, right. Of this, Mm -hmm. this perfect union, with 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 machine right with with media machines but then the 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 twist is that the the competing faction whose philosophy informs videodrome um seems to be a kind of reactionary um i mean and this is where i think there might be a little bit of cold war because on one hand you have this typically cronenbergian thing where you have this shadowy military industrial complex company totally. yeah, right yeah. um so and this is spectacular optical right yeah As spectacular the, which I, so I can't help but feel as a nod to deboard yeah yeah right? exactly like, yeah, yeah yeah absolutely yeah run by so, berry convex which is another berry great, convex. <laughs> great like cronenberg <laughs> yeah. pseudonym yeah 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 
Okay, so it's it's one of these, you know, in all those Cronenberg movies, there's always a shadowy military industrial complex company, mm-hmm. right? That's invested in all sorts of disturbing new technology. Yeah. And in this case, it's um it's this company that whose front is to produce affordable glasses for the the poor, right? So there's this odd it's way it's Tom cloaked in this for the of, yeah, exactly the, this kind glasses. of um humanitarian like ethical consumerism front and then you know they're involved in some kind of shadowy research beneath that um but basically it they when they articulate the philosophy it's basically that um north america and interestingly you know this is where like the canadian you know Mm -hmm. this feels like a very it, it sort of taps into an 80s american culture war discourse which is partly a sort of much older discourse of decadence, right? That that basically people have become soft. It ties into this whole discussion that begins with um, where, where Max first meets Debbie, uh, Debbie Harry's character, Nikki Brand, who's a, Mm -hmm. a sort of um, radio Agni aunt. And she, you know, interestingly, she kind of denounces the way that his, that his station sort of preys upon the vulnerabilities of viewers and, and sort of, um, corrupts them with the salacious content of course then she herself turns out to be you know very kinky shall we say yeah but in any case there's this whole idea that that these you know media like max's are sort of feeding the the appetites of this overstimulated populace right the whose nerves are sort of frayed by the overstimulation created by media mm-hmm. and who need stronger and stronger sensations right and this is like a very old you know you can find this back in nietzsche and other people like that right and this is what nietzsche says about wagner right that um people's nerves have been so weakened that they need you know this kind of they need the Gesamtkunstwerk. They need they need Wagner because they're they're decadent, right? Because right. they're 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 too um, their nerves are too too frayed and overstimulated to just appreciate things as they are, or like to a appreciate, more contemplative yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, type of thing. I mean, it, I mean, and, Kierkegaard writes a book about this sort of on like mass opinion and stuff like that. It's a very like slim volume that has a lot of the same yeah. critiques as well. Yeah, and so. Um, so the Videodrome philosophy seems to be a kind of eugenic one because the goal is to identify these people who have been weak, who have been made soft, right, by this overstimulation of, of media mm-hmm. and then to um, feed them this overpoweringly stimulating visceral content of Videodrome and in doing so to um basically give them fatal brain tumors right and so the the idea here is seems to be a eugenic one of weeding out mm-hmm. these kind of corrupted decadent um these these corrupted decadent sort of um ner- you know nervously overexcited people who consume this kind of depraved salacious content yeah and then you know there's this thing about how we need to make North America strong because the world is a tough place or something like that, so that is where there is this kind of weird cold war kind of um you know but but almost kind of neocon thing right yeah, where totally. it's like it's like we need to we need to cultivate this strong populace that that you know can be courageous and warlike again um yeah. and so we need to use this technology to weed out all of these weak decadent souls who are just sort of rotting their, 
um, rotting their brains with this um, salacious content. It is very neocon. I mean, I think what's interesting about the Nikki Brand situation, Debbie Harry's character, is that it, her hypocrisy is maybe the least interesting thing about her. It seems like it has to be a part of her character because of the type of figure she is. And it's interesting that she's part of an older suite of technology, which is radio, right? And she does, importantly, like a therapy radio where people call in with their problems. She basically gets them to cry and like really admit to things on air. And then she encourages them to call their help hotline so that they can get further help. I mean, I couldn't help but think of Christopher Lash's critique of like the therapeutic culture here, you know, and that's who she sort of stands in for. So we have like these competing, let's say like, I mean, definitely set in the Cold War, but post-war ideologies. We have sort of like the culture of narcissism, therapized self. We have the neocon survival of the fittest martial imperial state thing. And then we have the sort of like um, pseudo religious, like libertarian media monkey wrench gang, which is sort of Brian Oblivion's whole thing, right? The hackers type of uh, character. And these people are all colliding at once and getting subsumed by and co-opted by each other to the point where it actually totally breaks reality. And as you get, as you move through, like with so many of Cronenberg's films, the plot continues, but there's no moment where you check back in with what reality is supposed to be. Instead, it's like additive, right? It's just like, okay, then another thing happens. Then another thing happens. And the illusion becomes so sustained that it's indistinguishable from whatever reality might be to you, the viewer, despite the fact that events happen coherently enough that it's not a work of surrealism. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's quite um, consistent in a, as a, as a sort of um, realization of its own philosophy as a film that it, it, it does put the viewer in the position of Max in the sense that mm-hmm. we, we lose our anchoring in, in any reality beyond the, the sort of um, video induced hallucination just in the same sequence that he does. Right. We were, mm-hmm. we're essentially our, our, our uh, perception of, of the cinematic reality is coterminous with his. And so it, it takes us through that, that process in a sense. Yeah. Importantly, as Max himself becomes a parapolitical agent. Right. right? Um, he has this like weird orifice that's like a vagina that opens on his chest and in like sort of a slapsticky joke of masturbation. He has like this gun he's never used that he is now keeping in like taking out in his apartment because he's so paranoid about what might happen to him. And for whatever reason, his first instinct is to like stick the gun into the hole. And then later on, you know, he pulls it back out and then it becomes part of his body and this tumorous growth wraps itself around it after the gun has drilled itself into his hand. And he is sent first by spectacular um, vision to go kill Bianca Oblivion, who has taken over her father's 
pseudo-religious enterprise. And she co-ops him and turns him double agent. And he gets sent back to at a trade show, which weirdly misattributes a quote from Yates. Uh, Beauty comes in at the eyes and the like typical cliche saying of the eyes are the window of the soul to um, which Renaissance figure does it attribute it to? Is it to Michelangelo? Um, I, yeah, I seem to have lost that, but yeah, I I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And he's like, this is going to be our spring line, you know, (laughs) like these are our new glasses and Max kills him. We think, and then, and then Barry's body turns into those tumors it's like now that right. he's dead, it's as if this parasite that's been living in his body is free to erupt out and finally die. And he screams, long live the new flesh and flees the scene. I mean, I can't help but feel that a lot of this has to do with the exhaustion of the 70s, where Carlos the Jackal, you know, the Iran hostage crisis, OPEC, all of these things that we're creating a more chaotic world or really distilled in Videodrome. And it seems so much about um, early postmodern and modernist uh, aspirations running to ground against each other in this, because there is still a passion for the real, as Badu would say, that's the defining element of the short 20th century, but it cannot be sustained by the reality around it. You know, it can't be realized there suddenly there's a multiplicity of narratives and it's absolutely unclear which one has uh, authority over any other. Yeah. And, you know, then we have this um, quite, you know, I think quite haunting uh, final sequence Yeah, where he somehow ends up on this boat and um, well, you know, people should watch it, but, Basically, we have we have this um, final reiteration of this sort of loss where he he essentially sees his own suicide on screen, mm-hmm. which which is then repeated to us, you know, also on our screen. Yeah, by um, him. So, yeah. Right. Um, and that's the only so, way you can transcend. And, the old flesh has right, to exactly. die. It's like a yeah. modernist maxim. The old <laughs> flesh has to die. I mean, it's the Gramsci quote, I think it is, right? Yeah. The... the um, uh, what is it? The the new is struggling to be born. Yeah. Now is the time of monsters. Yeah. 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 So it's, um, so it does, I mean, and this is, I think one of the interesting things about it, you know, it's like we have a, um, it, it's clear that the, you know, convex, um, this kind of weird neocon mm-hmm. eugenicist, um, sort of techno conspiracy is is clearly coded as as evil and i think we are on some level made to side with bianca oblivion's kind of new flesh philosophy right as as viewers um right, although right. this this final again this final scene is quite um you know is is quite strange and haunting and and not you know it it, be, it ends with this resounding slogan of long live the new flesh but um, at the same time, he, he kind of, you know, dies in this relatively squalid way. So there's something, you know, a little bit ambiguous about the conclusion. Right. And the way that he, so he basically somehow like intuits, I almost feel like he's receiving a broadcast to end up at this boat. 
and there's already a mattress there. There's already a thing for a fire. You get the sneaking suspicions that he is not the first one to walk down this path, right? All of these things are already already for him uh, because someone else has already been taken over by the Videodrome and co-opted by um, Oblivion's sect. And it really does feel like there is no real alternative to any of these things. Like we can't, nothing gold can stay and nothing was gold in the first place. I mean, it does. What's interesting to me is at no point in this film does anyone from a clandestine agency or any politician or anything show up at all. There's not even like politicians on TV decrying the state of the media. This is like a totally self-contained, almost like a political environment of different games of position. And that feels, I mean, I think if there's anything that really feels like um, now it's that to me where everything is and isn't politics at the same time. It's all, I sent you that thing where it's like the guy who ran uh, eight coon or whatever it does where the Q, Q jobs would happen basically revealed that he was Q the whole time. And it just doesn't matter. Right. Right. <laughs> like, that's not, it's totally unimportant now <clears throat> that that was exactly the ruse. Many of us thought it was, and also not as scary as many of us thought it was. Um, and that that's, that's where we are, you know, and we have similar gripes with what's happening in uh 2021 like we have the whole like trad set that does feel like people are becoming weakened by these things the panic over birth rates you know over sperm count in men you know all of these things and then you have the like accelerationist like just give me the vr like i'm here to do it and then you have the people who are like max ren which is basically a huge part of the podcast here you and i are part of which is just like you're you're doing the work as Oliver Bateman would say. <laughs> right. I mean I it's weird. I almost want to say actually that you could think about the oblivion versus convex antagonism as a kind of version of the right versus left accelerationist mm-hmm. antagonism, right? Because essentially the I mean the convex um you know, the sort of Videodrome philosophy is, you know, in its, precisely in its eugenic quality, um, resembles a certain version of of kind of Landian, you know, right accelerationism. Or Peter Thiel, right? mm -hmm. It's just like we were supposed to get flying cars and all we got was like buttons. Right, right, right. You yeah, know, I need, which means that we just need to do more AWS work for the State Department. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah, that's how we will forge a future for the American way, you know? Right. And then, yeah, the oblivion side is a kind of, um, I mean, it's interesting, right? So I went a few years without thinking about this film that much, but then I went to an event. So this magazine, Real Life, that I've written for a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, most recently about the 5G covid conspiracy theory which is very similar to this right it's it's oh totally this idea of sort of broadcast signal that that can you know produce these um physical symptoms in the body 
but you know, it's, it, it's, um, so there was an event for that, a launch event for that magazine when it first started, maybe three or four years ago in New York that I went to, that was, um, there was a screening of Videodrome and then a kind of discussion of it in relation to the, you know, um, w- w- the way we think about and, and envision technology. And I kind of posed it body horror and cyberpunk as like two model, you know, two somewhat um, yeah. distinct models for thinking about this. And um you know, it, the guy who runs that magazine and, you know, who's written a couple, who's written a, at least one book uh, for Verso, um, Nathan Jurgensen, his whole thing was, I mean, he had this whole critique of digital dualism, which is basically the idea that there, that this kind of platonic model of the digital where, where mm-hmm. you, you sort of understand it as this pure realm of ideas. Right, um, right, right. And then, and then there's some reality that's, that's separate from that. Right. And that, that, you know, that, that there's sort of a, like he had an essay that I think where he initially brought up this idea that was called like the IRL fetish where, Mm -hmm. you know, he, he talks about just the idea that there's some kind of material substrate of reality that's not integrated at every point with the digital is entirely obsolete. Right. Right. Go touch grass. Right, right, right. And so the, you know, I, I think this film, it, it is kind of a useful sort of philosophical thought experiment for that, right? Because it really, I mean, I going back to my point about the contrast, which I think is one of the central things in it, right, is the contrast between the broadcast signal and the video. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the thing you brought up where basically he's, um, you know, as in other Cronenberg films, you know, he has this kind of physical portal where, um, you know, these t- technologies can be inserted, right? He basically grows this, this sort of vaginal, you know, sort of gaping hole in his, yeah. in his abdomen that, you know, where videos can be, he essentially can be controlled by, and, the, you know, so when he's initially brought under the control of Videodrome and Convex, you know, they insert a tape in him and then it's kind of giving him instructions. Right. Mm-hmm. And then Bianca later says, now they're playing you like a video cassette. Right. Yeah. And then she, she manages to essentially press the eject button, remove that, um, remove that Betamax tape and insert another one, which then is what prompts him to go assassinate convex. But mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so I think part of what's important about the video versus, um, is, I mean, about the video versus broadcast is the broadcast signal can be understood in this very, you know, this, this sort of abstracted platonic way, right. Where it's essentially these invisible floating signals that go directly to the, to the brain or to the mind. Right. Right, Whereas, um, whereas what, this film insists upon is the, the sheer physicality of media, right? That the media is, is a thing of the body. Right. And that, and so the, the fact that the, the abdomen becomes this sort of VCR portal is the most kind of visceral representation of that mm-hmm. philosophy, right. Where, where, um, it, it doesn't pass through the mind into the body. It passes through the body into the mind, essentially. Um, and, and that, you know, again, the, the kind of McLuhanite notion of, you know, kind of going back to your, um, your point about your just like your body being reshaped by technology, which, mm-hmm. you know, all of us experience on some level, you know, that they're really the, the way that the medium reshapes us is fundamentally 
you know, not a sort of abstract mental process, but is actually a, a visceral and physical process. Right. Max, when he goes on a talk show where we first meet Brian Oblivion, um, technically, uh, it turns out there is a VCR tape that's just been selected to play, which is, of course, incapable of answering any of the interviewer's questions in a coherent way. Um, and Debbie Harry and Max Wren are being interviewed on it. And one of the things that he says is he says, you know, basically, it's better that this is on the screen than in the streets. Right. And this right. is a public service almost, right? Civic TV that people can sort of discharge these foul desires uh, by watching simulations of them on television. But I think when, especially the final scene where when he's hallucinating his old TV set in the bottom of this boat and Debbie Harry returns to him, part of what happens is that after it shows him his own suicide as an instruction for how to transcend, it blows up and all of these organs come out of the screen, which is suggesting that they're the border between the mediated world and the physical world is basically moot. Like it's not, um, it can't be maintained throughout the course of this thing, you know? And I mean, one thing that I, I'm curious about, I remember I was working with a, a teenager, early teen, like 13 or something like that. And, um, you know, he needed to work on his reading skills. He liked sci-fi. So I picked out this book that was really meaningful to me when I was a kid called Feed by M.T. Andrews, in which everyone basically has an iPhone in their head. And school is just teaching you how to buy things and keep up with the latest trend. Like characters will go to the bathroom, see on their feed that haircuts have changed and then cut their hair quickly, you know, type of thing. And he could understand like all the pitfalls of this and where it would go. And then I asked him like, you know, basically if you could have your iPhone become a part of your body, would you, he'd be like, and he was like, yeah, like totally. Like he was old enough to be aware of the problems, but was also young enough to still sort of just be like, yeah, like this is fine. Or I don't even know if that has to do with youth. I'm sure there might be plenty of people who think that this is a good idea, but I'm wondering, you told me before we started recording that you've taught this movie a few times. And what are the student responses like to this now that we're out of sort of the VHS era? It's a good question. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I should say I taught it in the context of this course on technological paranoia. So we kind of read it in relation to this longer trajectory going mm -hmm. back you know, really a couple of centuries. Um, and it, it does fit very nicely into that trajectory, right? In, in terms of, you know, the this, um, I mean, you can connect it to, you know, works by Philip K. Dick, for example, in the way that it's part of this popularization of these kinds of themes that you really originally saw in, I mean, you saw in some kind of fantastic literature and sci-fi, but you also saw, but even before that in basically schizophrenic um, memoirs and mm -hmm. the sort of psychiatric literature of schizophrenia, right. Where we're really um, the, and so I should say, you know, my students reaction to, it were probably heavily colored by the fact that we had been like, by the time we got to this, we had spent like two months yeah. reading this whole, um, they were initiated sort of canon of texts that have to do with, I mean, and, and again, this is why I'm interested in this pivot from one, one technological 
medium to the next, because often, you know, one of the things people notice about schizophrenics is that they really register their shifts, right? That their, their delusions um, are often very up to date, right? Mm -hmm. They, they, um, you know, if, if you listen to them in the fifties, they're already talking about television, you know, how like uh, people on the television are talking directly to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, you know, once you get early on in the internet, they're focused on that. So they're they're often at the cutting edge of just um, thinking about, in a sense, this this type of visceral impact, right? The the way that these media reshape us. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting to try to get because I I think um, what I would say is, on one hand, you know. I think they wouldn't very immediately see the connection, right. To say something like, um, you know, the connection between the, these scenes where this video cassette is inserted in Max's abdomen and like the way their, their own bodies have, have sort of absorbed these technologies that are constantly mm-hmm. on their person. Right. And, and that th- their bodies have been re kind of reshaped around these, these technological devices, like, you know, I felt like I had to push them a little bit to, to get that connection even. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I think there is that tendency to this kind of, I mean, two things, right. I would say in talking to them, there is a tendency still to, you know, even despite that, just everyday immediate reality. I think the, the intellectual framework, the kind of intuitive intellectual framework is still very much this kind of dualist one, mm-hmm. right. That, that somehow they, um, they, they may feel the way that these technologies are, have become extensions of themselves in the sort of McLuhan sense, but they don't really think of it that way or very intuitively, right. That, that mm-hmm. it's still, I think that's still kind of a difficult point to, to convey a lot of the time. And so I remember that coming out in this conversation that, that they didn't quite, I mean, I, you had to kind of push to get them to actually think about the way the body and the yeah. yeah. So what is machine the machine for you? Yeah. 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 And then, um, yeah, beyond that, you know, I think they, they definitely got, the, the whole cultural discourse that, uh, again, I, I would argue is really old at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Around the idea that media are kind of corrupting us morally and, and sort of fraying our nerves. And I mean, I, I think that's something they were, they were able to recognize as, as one that that's still all around them, right? That, that this, this constant anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. About, about something like screen time, right? Yes. That, that many of them would have grown up with and had, you know, um, their parents giving them, you know, trying to set rules on this and them, the, them always kind of struggling against that. But at the same time, having some kind of nagging guilt or sense that there was something bad about this, um, that, that there is something, you know, almost um, morally corrupting, right? Of character about these, about exposure to these mm-hmm. media. I think that part they definitely could connect to and realize, you know, and, and it was interesting for, to realize that, you know, these earlier moment, these earlier moments in media history had, you know, saw similar discourses and, and that, you know, you know, that that is something that's basically accompanied every new 
mm-hmm. um, advancement in, in popular technological media. So I think that was probably the part where I remember they, they were kind of, they copped on picking up on something that I, you know, because they, they relate to just the idea that they've spent their lives like chafing against these adults who are like, don't do that. You know, don't look Mm -hmm. at your screen so much It's bad for you. Right. So I think that was, um, that was pretty interesting even just to make the basic historicizing move of realizing that, that there is this kind of longer trajectory of, of those anxieties. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about your, your earlier point about the difference between the broadcast and the VHS. And I recently had this experience where um, I finally got rid of my Spotify because I realized that having this like, huge archive basically the borgesian total library of music had created almost the problem of the library of Babel, where i didn't really know what music meant to me anymore it was just this sort of thing that was around and part of that had to do with this limitlessness and then in hearing what you said and reflecting on that experience and and that analysis is that i realized you know in the sort of like bad faith uh hegelian like um, thesis, antithesis, synthesis type of <laughs> argument. It's sort of like broadcast VHS streaming. You know, like uh, that is those two things together. You get the huge archive and the constant beaming like all at once. And I do think that there is something to those sort of... Um, even if they can sometimes be moralizing and hysterical critiques of that, it does seem like a lot. And it does feel like there's this aperture that opens into the past that makes it very difficult to understand like breakages or narrative or things like that. Instead, we live in a kind of like hegemonic present, you know? And, and I that- think that's, yeah. One of my guests uh, on my podcast, uh, Chris Gabriel, who hosts the meme analysis um, mm-hmm. YouTube channel. We, we talked about the sort of schizophrenizing and this relates back to, you know, that, that on one hand we have schizophrenics historically picking up on and being very attuned to media. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, this, and this is where we have this kind of convergence, right? Because I think what you're describing there is a kind of schizophrenizing effect because um, part of the the sort of phenomenology of schizophrenia is this sense of um, an overwhelming sort of surplus of sensation uh, and of kind of sensory possibility that they can't be integrated, right? And then this is essentially mm-hmm. what happens in the the film what you were describing before about how the there's a kind of loss of a of a clearly comprehensible narrative thread other than this kind of foreboding, but ultimately kind of opaque conspiratorial narrative, right? So, so the film is really about this kind of schizophrenizing effect where on one hand you have this, um, this kind of surf, surfeit of stimulation um, or, or of, of stimuli of, of you know, this kind of sensory overload. But then on the other hand, you have this this kind of attempt to stitch it all together through a kind of conspiratorial arc, but but one that ends up being kind of vague and internally incoherent on some level. Right. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, I can't help think of the, the fireworks thing that you wrote about this summer, right? And the sort of every living in a constant state of apophenia where you feel like you're putting things together, but you're never quite sure if you're just seeing a pattern that isn't there or recognizing something real. And it's made me think a lot about the technique of genealogy and, and where we are. I was talking with a friend about this the other day not this specifically, but it was sort of my, after the conversation, it was bugging me while I was like making lunch or whatever, um, where it seems like when you're doing um, a genealogy, like one of the pitfalls you can run into is that you end up ironically being like, things have always been this way, right? And sort of fail at the genealogical task of teasing out the different iterations over time and how things have meaningfully changed, I would say, right? You know, and then the other side, sort of the skill in the Charybdis is like that. And then on the one side being like, you know, the past is a totally different country. We'll never understand it in the same way, you know? But it seems to me like the genealogy I see come up more and more. And I do feel like it falls prey to a things have always been this way idea because some of these anxieties that you've talked about, we've, been with for a really long time and we have yet to find sufficient ways to resolve them. So it's not that there's nothing to a similarity across time, but that we have yet to sort of contain the rupture of modernity in any real sense is part of my feeling. And that's part of what the film is about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think of it in terms of almost a kind of vanishing mediator. I mean, I think of paranoia as in relation to technological history as, and I haven't fully articulated this idea, but it, mm-hmm. it functions as a kind of vanishing mediator in that it it sort of, um, it, it mediates some kind of perception of the potentialities of this mm-hmm. um, particular set of technologies and then you know once those once those potentialities are actually realized it it's sort of pushed further and into the you know future but but i think in some sense it's it's become more recently it's it's technology has sort of largely exhausted the the sort of paranoid archive Mm -hmm. um that that emerged and that provided a kind of imaginative, a set of kind of imaginative, imaginative tools to kind of indirectly apprehend the the potentialities of these these sort of um, media that were in the process of sort of transforming experience and mm-hmm. and um, and politics and much more. And and then you know what what I would say is in some ways it's it's become the archive has become somewhat stagnant because the media themselves have created this. And I mean, we can put video drum in this process, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have these kind of narratives, right, about technology as say bodily invasion, for example, right, when they first emerge they're they're quite strange and eccentric in a sense. Um, But, um, you know, and there's this kind of rationalizing, um, attempt to marginalize that that sort of um that sort of perception of of technology whether you know whether metaphorical in a sort of literary sense or literal often in a kind of schizophrenic or psychotic sense but but then you know media as media becomes 
um, the ve primary vehicle of sort of narrative and entertainment, it, it just kind of absorbs all of these themes and feeds them back to us. And so the result is that we're actually kind of, um, whereas these ideas were often, as I said before, kind of on the cutting edge, that they're in some ways often obsolete because they don't, um, I mean, because all of us have been fed all this entire archive, right? Yes, through movies yeah. like Videodrome and through Philip K. Dick and, mm -hmm. you know, all of the many spinoffs. And so, you know, in The Matrix, obviously, maybe getting pride mm -hmm. of place here, but you know, that, that we, we have this, this sort of, um, this paranoid arc, this paranoid cultural archive that shapes the way we respond to and perceive technology. But, but whereas I think that once had a more anticipatory effect where it, it kind of push could push us to see what was kind of around the corner or what the deeper implication, you know, sort of McLuhan-esque implications of these technologies were, um, you know, beyond the particular content that they pervade, but, but mm -hmm. just in terms of how they, they reshaped the kind of materiality of our experience, that, that now there, there is a kind of weird feedback loop that they, they've been so heavily injected into popular culture that, that we all kind of intuitively recognize them. But that actually gets between us seeing what's really happening with the technology today. Now I'd say Videodrome is, I'd, I'd put a look, you know, I, I think it's a lot better than, you know, it's, it's actually, it, it grasps a lot of things that um, say something like the matrix doesn't, I would say. Um, and, and it's, I think it's a much better kind of prophecy. Um, right. And, well, and a much more useful one today. Right. So we could say this, the matrix is matrix is obviously, you know, I have a friend who, you know, is like getting his PhD. And so he's teaching and he was like, do you want to come over and watch the matrix with me? This was like two years ago or whatever. I was just like, yes, I'm happy to help you prep for teaching Plato's Republic. And he was like, how did you know? <laughs> you know, cause he teaches political theory. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, it's gotta be, you know? And what's interesting to me is that the matrix hybridizes sort of the Joseph Campbell hero's journey with the platonic dualism of image and reality, right? And I think that that's why it feels both powerful and why it's less useful. Whereas I remember before he got canceled, Sam Chris did a really long Twitter th thread on some scientific findings that the spider web is an extension of the spider's brain actually. And it is like dialectically enmeshed in this thing that it creates. And he was like, the first thing I'm thinking of is, of course, like iPhones and stuff like that. And I think that that's why Videodrome is more troubling, intractable, and ultimately more useful as a way to try to interrogate our situation is in rejecting that dualism, we're confronted with the immediacy of our situation. Whereas the idea that there's this sort of, uh, you could leave the cave feels like um, a more spiritual and perhaps reactionary hope. Yeah. And I mean, in some sense, that's, you know, arguably that's kind of the, that that's actually the weird kind of neocon ideology of the Videodrome people, right? That, that mm -hmm. in some sense they're, they, they think that you can have media without, without these effects, right? They're, um, you know, in other words, and they, they also seem to think that there's a certain type of person who's, um, you know, whether 
genetically or for some other reason sort of predisposed to these. I mean, it's interesting, right? I think there's a, there's an important parallel. So on one hand, we have the cathode ray mission, Mm -hmm. right? Which, which is kind of, you know, it, it does remind me of, I feel like there have been all those things about like some really dumb Silicon Valley dude who like comes up with some idea about what to do with the homeless in San Francisco. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit like that. Right. It's, it's like a completely, it seems like a completely, the cathode even though we're will supposed heal to be, them and reintegrate right, even, them into the mixing board of the world is what exactly, Yaco Oblivion right. says. Yeah. Right. And you know, it's like, I think we're supposed to be sort of sympathetic to, to them, but to the, the, uh, the Oblivions, but, you know, it's uh, um, it's obviously a t- totally ridiculous <laughs> sort yeah. of batshit um, project. But, um, you know, on one hand, so but I, I think what is important there, which would maybe be the left versus right accelerationist contrast I was suggesting, yeah, totally. is we have this, this um, idea that, you know, there are certain people who are socially marginalized who can be um, who can be saved by being reintegrated into the sort of technological, um, the, the sort of technological shared imagination of the society, right? That, mm-hmm. that they can be, um, they can be in some sense recovered, um, re- reintegrated into society through this kind of, um, y- y- you know, that, that, I mean, and this is kind of what's ridiculous about it in very Silicon Valley solutionist, right? That, that somehow, we don't need to create these larger, you know, social reforms that will provide help to these people. We just need to give them access to, um, and, you know, you can think about how all these schemes to like, you know, give, um, whatever, like maybe Mark Zuckerberg or somebody being like, we're going to like provide the internet to every school in Africa. And it's like, well, you know, if they don't have actually a... have if they don't actually like have electricity or something right you know right, just yeah. things like that it's like if they if they don't have electricity and can't afford to run a generator then like great you know but but the point is you know regardless there is this idea that this kind of utopia of technology allowing for a kind of larger set of social solutions that bypass any kind of politics right and this goes back to your your point that this film is completely um, has, you know, there are no politicians in it. There's no sense of any kind of political order. Right. So this is Mm -hmm. a totally anti-political and kind of solutionist project. Right. Yeah. Um, Which we can definitely recognize from like Silicon Valley people today, Mm -hmm. but then, so, but that's kind of the left accelerationist and then the right accelerationist is oddly opposite to that. Right. Because it it seems to imply that there are these anti-social, people right and we can recognize this idea right of you know maybe sort of the these sort of basement dwelling you know 4chan posters or whatever right just these kind of dangerous antisocial people who have been rotted by this you know sort of been rotted to the core by this um suite of technologies right and so the the um the right accelerationist project here is to identify these people and use technology not to reintegrate them, but to destroy them, like to full, to fully realize their destruction, right. To, to literally cause them to rot as it turns out, convex himself has been rotting. Um, right. You know, by, by implanting these tumors. Yeah. In them. Yeah. So, so there's an odd kind of parallelism there between this vision of technology as, as a kind of integrating force that can, 
you know, bring people back into the, the fold um, who have, who have somehow been marginalized versus this use of technology as a way of um, accelerating the, the sort of eugenic um, purification of the, the race by getting rid of these antisocial types. Yeah, absolutely. The calling, you know, I mean, it's sort of the right wing scapegoat. Yeah. You know, hunt. Right. And one of the things that we talked about before we started recording was uh, Warhol's statement that Videodrome is a clockwork orange for the 80s. In other words, I think what he meant by that is that uh, clockwork orange is like very much like about Fordist conformity society and discipline society and being, you know, sort of plugged into your like spot on the assembly line and the public works. I mean, Pink Floyd's The Wall is, of course, about this, you know, and has all the tropes of the headmasters, you know, um, and things like that. Whereas Videodrome is about like control society, right? Where it's a much uh, softer, but in some ways more insidious and pervasive type of management that ends up creating a sort of social narrative breakdown through its insidiousness because things are always subtly hinted at, nothing is clear, there's no obvious demonstration of power. Instead, there seems to be these background contracts operating that basically shape the contours of your life in a way that you can't readily recognize. I mean, it makes me think of Rick Roderick, what he said about 1984, um, the book where he says, uh, 1984 arrived in sort of the early 70s and Orwell's vision of a horrible future, which was a boot stomping on a human face forever is a utopian image because he assumes there would be resistance in human faces, both of which may turn out to be false. <laughs> so he says, so, I mean, 1984 is not a book that scares me anymore. <laughs> You know, and I feel like Videodrome, it's like really there. What there, There's this larger question of like whether the human subject matters at all as an organic category that we've been assuming, right? Even the Enlightenment dualists were assuming a sort of um, pre-digital, pre-cathode ray entity that didn't have these physical vehicles of dialectic hyper-reality becoming additive parts of our experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I'm interested in the, in relation to the controls. I mean, one of the important points about control society is the, um, the re reorganization of space mm -hmm. where you have this notion of greater mobility Um you know, and, and Foucault talks about this also in terms of a society of security um, in, in his later lectures. And, you know, securitization and control both have to do with this shifting disposition of space where you move away from these, enclo these institutional enclosures, right? And, and you, you shift towards this... Um, this mode of greater mobility, but also, um, you know, a sort of a grid on which every point can be mapped out and tracked at every time. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of interested, again, going back to my memory of, in fact, like first seeing this movie and just that um, the era of the video cassette 
and the way that that VHS tapes circulated is kind of interesting in this way as well. That mm-hmm. um, that there's something distinct, you know, in in terms of this evolution of media, where you have you know, you imagine the 50s family with the television, right? And the te- television has a limited number of channels. Um, the, the, the viewing is, um, is institutionally constrained by this particular bourgeois space in which it occurs. Um, you know, the television is still a kind of, um, it, it's still, a, it's a disciplinary um, or, or at least can function as a sort of disciplinary apparatus, right? At, mm-hmm. that, at that stage, um, at least in its early existence, because it's tied to the kind of ideal bourgeois, you know, nuclear family. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, I, the video is kind of an interesting um, t- instance of a, a sort of early technology that seems to be subversive of that because of its, its the way that it enables kind of clandestine underground circulation of media. Yeah, because um, you, you know, it, with with the, again the sort of um, the the classic uh, you know sort of um, high bourgeois post war you know I, idealized American family, you have you know a a, a confinement in space. You have um, the limitation of content by the relative paucity of channels, right? And then you have. Um, a relative, um, you know, constriction in terms of, you know, because there isn't this kind of, um, you know, your, your apprehension of media is, um, within this sort of institutional context, if we understand the family as itself as an ideological state apparatus, right? Whereas when we get to the video, it's kind of, you know, you imagine, like I imagine myself, or I think what you were describing before of like watching these movies in basements with friends, you know, mm-hmm. you're not in the family room or the living room. You're like in the basement with like the second, it's like, you know, second or third TV in the household with like a yeah. VCR. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, you're watching these tapes that might be, um, you know, illegal copies or whatever, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, pirated versions and you know so there is this way that it enables this kind of um this kind of apparent freedom of of circulation right and this kind of fracturing of the media sphere Mm -hmm. that goes along with that but you know the way this film represents that is very much as a new as enabling new modes of control right because because the video itself becomes the kind of um, the new uh, device, you know, and it's, and it's not a kind of centralized tower. I mean, and this is also important in terms of these, you know, it's not a, it's not a centralized tower in one location, sort of panopticon, like Mm -hmm. disseminating signals out to everyone. It's a, it's a individualized cassette that's fed directly into your body. Um, So, so there's something Interesting about that, you know, relatively evanescent form of, you know, because it's it's interesting having grown up with VHS that, you know, it it seems in retrospect like a relatively short-lived and evanescent media form that that kind of comes between, um, to, you know, broadcast TV and the internet, mm-hmm. you know, which as you said is is this kind of, um, you know, becomes this kind of bad Hegelian synthesis, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't help but think of the Nicolas Cage movie Five Millimeter. 
Oh yeah. Watching oh, this, yeah. right. Where he goes on the hunt for a snuff film right? yeah, to try yeah. and locate the girl and yeah. get sucked into that movie is way better than it has any business being yeah, by the really, way. Really <laughs> You know, you get what's interesting about that movie is that it speaks to the fact that there are these sub rosa forms of control and power in this black market world. That what seems like a liberation of no rules is actually a return to these sort of people with old money being able to freely indulge in things that are too taboo for their outward appearance. Right, and it is their way to reabsorb uh, these abilities to freely discharge their most heinous power fantasies because they have the ability to. You know, um, it is not this sort of uh, libidinal opening up of society, but a default to accretions of aristocratic power with less obvious signifiers of said power, right? It becomes more ambient in its way. And I think that's what you can't watch video room and not think of like Cass Sustine's like um, nudge book where it's about tailoring the human experience towards optimization through micro tweaks in your environment. You know, in other words, physically shifting the world around you. In the same way that as you were bringing up, the TV absolutely reshaped the living room in the suburban home, right? If you look at pre-1950s houses, you know, like I remember when my parents got divorced, my mom had to look for a new house, going house hunting with her. And like every home that was built pre-1950, you'd walk into the living room and something felt off about it. And that's because it was just for people to sit and talk in. But if you walked into a house that was made after 1950, that's where the TV lived. You know, and I think that that is exactly the type of repatterning that Videodrome asks us to really sit with, whether it's the repatterning of our bodies or the repatterning of the world around us, either visually, um, intellectually, or physically. I mean, that's what's so funny about the beauty comes in at the eye and the eyes are the windows to the soul, is that that is also the aperture through which the cathode ray overtakes you. What did you think of this um, thing? Since we're thinking about spectacular, I thought the the very weird scene where Max goes in and is trying on glasses, and he puts on these very um, sort of fe- you know feminine glasses of the period. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I I don't quite know what to make. It's I think it's when he's first brought in to meet Barry, Barry Convex, Convex, right? Yeah. And they put and the... he he puts on a couple pairs of glasses, and then when Barry comes in, he's wearing these kind of very awkward sort of glasses that you would imagine like an older woman wearing in the eighties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just uh, I, it's just such a weird little sequence. Did you have any thoughts about it? Yeah, I was wondering. There are a few puzzling scenes, right? Um, The first one that puzzles me is when his character dips day-old pizza crust into his coffee and then eats it. Like, absolutely baffling. I was just like, oh, this is telling us something about the character. And then I was just like, actually, it isn't. Like, there's no, there seems to be, this is like a weird red herring type of thing. And the only thing that I could think of when I was watching him put the glasses on is, of course, anytime a character does that, I think of the movie They Live. Yeah. Right, where you put the glasses on. But what's 
fascinating about that is that the glasses are mock-ups, which means that they're either don't have any glass in them or that the glass doesn't change the way you look. They only change the way he appears to bury convex. So one way yeah. that I thought about it is that it's less about like, how is he seeing Barry Convex and how is Barry Convex seeing him? And it's somebody who's sort of now dislodged and out of place from whatever his normal role would be. He's wearing these yeah. glasses that might belong to an older and different gender of the time, even if they're trendy. And it's also someone who doesn't fully understand the situation that he's entered into. They bespeak yeah. his, I think they really signify that naivete you were talking about now that we're, we're talking about it is that like, to me, that's his final moment of naivete. Yeah. He's just trying on these glasses as if this is like any other fucking experience he could have after like his TV, has grown veins and he is like inserted his head to it, into it in this like hypersexual way, you know, with Debbie Harry's like lips, like Mick Jagger at the beginning of Rocky horror like grainily on the screen you know it's like how is this guy still this way and i think that that's part of how he's so easily co-opted by barry convex he's so willing to put on the thing that measures his fantasy and takes him over the edge into absolute effect infection by videodrome itself so i guess maybe that's what that scene is doing there yeah and i mean i, I guess the other point is like he's a you know, he is this entrepreneur who early on we see in the business of sort of trying on or trying out products, mm -hmm. right? And so it's kind of related to that, right? Where initially the whole way he's perceived, I mean, again, what you're saying about him being out of his depth or out of his element, um, he he's still in the process. He's still, you know, even when he has these initial hallucinations, he's kind of electrified by them because he sees this as a product that he could potentially sell to the public, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and he doesn't understand that he's not the one who, you know, that, that he's not the one who's really, who's in control anymore um, because he really has this naive idea that, that this is essentially a market transaction, right? That, right. That There's no philosophy. Involved. He's just looking just for the, the passions and the interests. Most, the most advanced product that he can sell. The way that he looks silly in that scene is I think revealing of the fact that his, this naivete is just about to be, you know, fully exposed. And, you know, he, it is, it is a pivotal moment, right? Because it's, it's after that, that he's essentially increasingly unable to tell the difference between. Yeah. As are we, the viewer and reality, as are we, you know, and, um, you know, in bringing this up, maybe this brings it so full circle to the beginning of the film. We were talking about Masha's warning, She's just like, look, these people have a philosophy. You don't have that. Like incredibly wise advice by her, by the way, somebody who really understands and appreciates Max Ren for who he is, is obviously has a very loving, almost like maternal element to her, Yeah, you know, um, and understands fully who he is. She really sees him in a way that Barry Convex really sees him. Right. I think they both see the same thing in him um, as part of it. But there's this nice moment when he goes to purchase the Samurai Dreams tapes in the seedy hotel and the Japanese guys show them to him. Um, and he's just like, just give me the last one, which has like the dildo scene in it, basically. And they're just like, and the guy says, oh, Max, what you won't understand. He's just like, look, my audience doesn't care and I'm not going to show them anything that contextualizes this. I just want like the porno scene. And then later on when he's watching the, 
video drum broadcast for the second time, he says, God, there's no plot, but you can't take your eyes off it. It's just the thing. In other words, they've showed him exactly what he's been looking for at a content level the whole time. But the content, of course, we know was just the window dressing for the philosophy and the physical uh, ele- physicalizing elements of the ideology. Yeah. And so there is something to be said here about this being, you know, we talked about it being a sort of mostly post cold war movie, mm-hmm. you know, even the seemingly cold war esque part, I would say is kind of an anticipation of this neocon project of we need mm-hmm. to, um, you know, we need to, we need to create these projects that make people, um, you know, strong and courageous again. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so there is this, um, you know, this kind of end of history quality of the film, right. Where there's no politics. There's just kind of this uh, mediatic manipulation mm-hmm. um, that politics takes place on the level of struggle over the, the sort of means of representation. Um you know, so it's it's a very kind of Baudrillardian post-politics in that yeah. sense. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting that we have Max as this kind of, um, you know, his naivete is that of someone who really believes in a kind of homo economicus um, model of understanding the society he lives in, mm-hmm. right? And so it actually reminds me of a lot of this kind of stuff that we saw later where, um, you know, and, and again, this relates very much to the neocon stuff where, you know, there's this idea of like after 9-11, right? That, um, you know, and, and, and you know, somebody you brought up before, Peter Thiel has an essay that's very uh, interesting in relation to this called The Straussian Moment, right? Where he talks about, um, have you read that one? No, I haven't read that okay. one. Yeah, I you mean, should, I've heard, given I've heard your, tell of it. Yeah, given your, uh, you know, your Straussian uh, training, it's uh, definitely something you should check out. But he, but he sort of um, talks about the the idea, the sort of the the idea that the global economic and political order was constructed around this naive sort of Homo economicus model of mm-hmm. the human being, right? And that the terror, right? The, the jihadists, the terrorists. You know, as Masha political. said of, but, but right, and as Masha says of um, of the video drum creators have a philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so Teal as a, a sort of neocon, um, uh, although although not quite, is is sort of similarly saying we we need to have a philosophy too, right? We can't mm-hmm. we can't just be um, we can't just be these these naive um, people who think we can just kind of you know, calculate and maximize utility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and the, and the, that's what got us into trouble in the first place. Right. So, yeah. So what's interesting about this film is I think it really captures a lot of these post cold war theme and these sort of end of history themes, right. Where we have this, um, this, um, this naive uh, post politics of, the, the human subject is just this, you know, rational maximizer of utility. And that's essentially Max, right? He, where he, he understands the, the struggle to be merely an economic one, right? It's a, I mean, he's essentially a, thinking about the attention economy, right? He's saying, yeah. 
um, what, what, you know, the, the, the only thing that's really going on here is different people competing for the attention of, of consumers, right, of, of media content. And then we have these people who have these philosophies, right? Um, and so, so there's a conflict between those, but, but which are themselves sort of anti-political in, in another sense, mm-hmm. um, because they still accept the terrain of media as a terrain, fundamentally a terrain of manipulation, right? Not, not a terrain of, of kind of reason, political discourse, but, but a a terrain of, of, of subliminal manipulation in effect, right. Of, of, of a kind of um, where, where the real struggle takes place on, on the level of sort of propagandistic innovation. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I also think that that's like the enormous defeat of the Habermasian discourse project. And I think that that defeat in my mind is most perfectly captured in Zuccotti Park, which politically we have in many ways never left. But that is a topic for another time. Maybe we can have you on to talk about uh, the 10 year anniversary of Occupy. Um, (laughs) And and, uh, these sort of subliminal media and false neutrality discursive ideas so i think we'll end it there uh jeff thanks so much for coming on this was an absolute blast thank Um, you yeah it's great yeah i hope to do it again and listener stay safe out there and we'll see you next time long live the new flesh long live the new flesh